You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we do need you. We need you, Lord Jesus, to show yourself to be beautiful and captivating in our lives. We need you, O Spirit, to illumine your scriptures and to help us fix our eyes on Jesus. So we pray that you would do this in your word this evening through the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, there's a lot of people here tonight. It is great to see you all. Uh, This year has been one long year of cancellations and of delays and of pivots. We figured out how to transition some things uh, to other ways of doing things, like some permanently. It sure looks like, like telehealth is here to stay in some way or another in our society, as well as online or perhaps more flexible learning from like graduate programs on down to elementary school. Hopefully those won't be <laughs> uh, too online though the, with the little ones. Uh, And yet, while some things, like online or digital church, are temporary oxymorons. And and just before, hang on, before we get into the meat of Acts 2, I was going somewhere with all that, like time and delays and cancellations thing. Uh, Can I just mention and and encourage you in something here first? Uh, Zoom has been a very beneficial good in the life of our church during this time. Certainly for the initial 10 weeks or so where we were uh, not allowed to gather at all. And then in the past several months, for those who have been particularly susceptible to the dangers of COVID, for those who feel that they would really just rather be singing loudly at home, and for those with small children, uh, since we haven't restarted Christchurch Kids for the time being. But especially for those who are not joining us, perhaps you might look at the phone here, uh, who are not joining us perhaps because of small children. 
uh, can I encourage you to begin reconsidering uh, what it might look like to be just kind of rejoining us in the life of our church somewhat regularly. Uh, last Sunday, I just, it seems like there's been like a dozen kids that have been born in the last six months of COVID in the last, or in, in the life of our church, and I think they all were here last Sunday, and I think they're all here again, uh, which is just wonderful. Uh, you may not be able to, at home, uh, hear their cries or see their wiggles, uh, but I assure you, if you are afraid that you are going to ruin a pristinely quiet service by bringing your children, you are not. Uh, and in fact, that's a good thing. The cries and the squeals are ongoing reminders to us of the blessing of children, of the kindness of God to provide such precious gifts. And that isn't also to say that we also aren't uh, thankful for those who are especially squirmy or ongoingly wiggly uh, to perhaps sit near the back, uh, for the rest of you to perhaps leave the last few pews or so uh, open for those with small children that uh, moms or dads might be able to step back in the foyer with a particularly loud one. But I do worry, I do worry about what consequences there might be of not gathering under God's word together for like six months or ongoingly longer for you and your kids. Uh, what we have all thought might be initially just a few weeks, and then what has quite clearly become many months and perhaps much longer, uh, well, there's, there's risks here. Uh, and while there are risks of gathering, even though we are still temp checking, we are distancing, we are masking and not singing, I don't want to ignore the risks of not gathering as well. Uh, are you, perhaps, beginning to feel the temptation uh, of allowing this assembly to become optional in your life? Are you beginning to feel the temptation to allow this assembly to merely be just about the transfer of theological content rather than a covenanted body who gathers together to worship God together in spirit and in truth? Uh, is the temptation of understanding these gatherings to be about what you might get out of it rather than what you might contribute to it? And are your children perhaps beginning to believe that assembling with God's people is optional or worse, unnecessary? And for your little squirmers out there, uh, might I encourage you in what we did with our own kids when they were even like three years old, uh, that I would practice with our boys during the week. Uh, they may not remember some of this, but we would, I would sit down in a chair in the middle of the living room next to them in a chair, and we would practice sitting still for 30, 35, 40 minutes with like just a spiral notebook on our laps of, so that on Sunday, uh, I might be able to lean over and whisper and say, you can do this. Remember, we did this on Thursday afternoon. Uh, but also for the, an extra opportunity just to uh, remind our children that we actually don't need ongoingly in, ongoing entertainment and distraction and screens in front of us, that actually sitting still with our thoughts in quiet is actually a good thing, even more so than just Sundays. So unless you or someone in your house or in, immediate, in your immediate care are particularly susceptible to the dangerous effects of COVID, can I challenge you to begin uh, re slowly re-entering even into the most important thing that we do together as a church of our corporate worship of God? So maybe once a month, maybe every other week, maybe, you know what, maybe it's time and just every week now uh, coming together. Uh, we're about to start our second round of new members in our membership class tonight. Uh, mo most of whom 
certainly in this most recent class, and then even in the class before, that many of you members may have not ever seen, certainly not had the context or opportunity to see their faces and to get to know them as covenanted brothers and sisters together in the same body. Okay, so pastoral rant over. Where was I? Um, 2020. Uh, 2020 has had lots of pivots, has had lots of redirections, but also delays and cancellations. Uh, Sports leagues and events were postponed or canceled. The Olympics, one of my favorite two weeks of every other year, is postponed until next summer. Balloon Fiesta canceled altogether. What a bummer. The timing of things has just been thrown off, and they're all out of whack, and I don't think many of us actually know what where we are in the calendar right now, do we? (laughs) Just because uh, the normal time landmarks are gone in the year or they're in the wrong place. But there are other markers in time that are even confusing by their very design. In November, we're going to have a presidential election. And what makes uh, any presidential election crazy is if a challenger wins, or like four years ago, if both candidates are new, Uh, then the person who is elected in November actually does not become president until late January. It's a very strange time. It's a strange time of transition and even a couple of months of kind of political uncertainty. What's going on? Like, where are we right now? And this is where we are in Acts 2. It's like December or it's early January in an election cycle year. It is the time between the times. Almost like the time between creation with Adam and the fall of Adam and Eve, and then God's coming coming covenant with Abraham. God's people then were in a state of covenantal transition and expectation. But God's covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with David, they will all find their end and fulfillment in what happens here in Acts 2, what you just heard Kelsey read. So while it's our temptation to read this chapter and to hear this chapter read and then just immediately like jump to all kinds of questions about tongues, and we'll get there, this little section has miles deep theology that extends all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. So we're going to see Acts 2, uh, that God seals and fulfills a new covenant that will make the entire earth his temple. And we'll see him do this in two sections tonight, Uh, in God providing, first, the Holy Spirit for the church, and second, the Holy Spirit for the world. The Holy Spirit for the church and for the world. So first of all, in the Holy Spirit for the church, we learn in verse 1 that it is the time of Pentecost. Uh, This is a Jewish feast, and you can actually hear in that very word, penta, five. You can hear that word there. Pentecost means 50. It's a Jewish feast that is 50 days after Passover. It's a harvest feast in the late spring, the early summer, in which Jews would thank God for the first fruits of their harvest, the very first sheaves of wheat or barley that were gathered, or fruit, or whatever they were gathering. They would bring these things in, they would come to Jerusalem, and they would thank God for these things. And importantly, it is the most well-attended feast in all of the year in Jerusalem, even more than Passover, even more than Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, Pentecost, would mean the absolute swelling of Jerusalem from dispersed Jewish pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world. So it's on this day, at this time of Pentecost, where Jerusalem is busting at the seams with people, that the the 120, the, the same that we met last week in Acts 1, they are presumably still in the upper room where we last found them, and there comes at this time in the upper room 
a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And now this is not the sound of like Americana folk music from which the incredible satire mockumentary A Mighty Rushing Wind comes from, uh, but this is the sound of, of a, the literal Greek, a violent rushing wind. I suppose this is Luke's way of describing the sound in exactly the same way that every single person that is on the local news after a tornado describes a tornado. And how do they describe the sound of a tornado? Man, it was just like a freight train coming through here, ripping our house apart, right? This is the sound of a tornado. This is a sound of a freight train, and it is filling the house. It would be terrifying. Maybe the people are trying to yell at each other. They're trying to check on one another, and no one can even hear the sound of their own yells over this sound, over the violent rushing wind. And if that weren't enough, as you're like yelling across the, the room at, at James or if, at Joseph Barsabbas or maybe Mary Magdalene over there in the corner or perhaps at the top of the stairs, Nicodemus, like you look up and you see not just you, your, your head is disoriented by the sound, but then you look over and, and like Mary's hair appears to be on fire. Like it's too loud for you to barely think much less warn her in your yells so you grab a blanket to perhaps just go throw on Mary's head. And before you get there, she grabs your wrists and she looks over your head, stunned at the disbelief that there is fire over your head as well. This is a moment of utter confusion, of perhaps fear and of wonder. What in the world is going on here? Presumably, the, the wind finally dies down, the, the freight train noise finally subsides, the appearance of the fire goes out, but the fire does not go out. The fire goes in. Luke tells us in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's a, there's a whole lot going on here, and we'll get to the tongues section, part in our next section, but let's talk about wind and fire for a second. Let's go all the way, all the way back to Genesis 1.1 where we read the very first words of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you might think, why in the world did we just read that? But it is the Spirit of God that is hovering over the waters, and this word spirit is the Hebrew word for ruach. And ruach literally means breath or wind. These words are all synonymous in Hebrew. When you look at the trees blowing, it is because the ruach, it is because of our word, the wind is blowing the, the leaves. And all of these things are actually theologically related as well. An ancient Hebrew thinker would understand the wind to be the very breath, the wind of God creating and animating the world. And this is exactly what happens when Adam is created in Genesis 2. We read, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's not now that Adam's lungs began working or something, but that he received breath. He received the wind, the spirit of God, the creating, animating life of God. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to get into a huge, long Old Testament long biblical theology of the Holy Spirit, the breath and the wind of God. But at this point, we can say that in Acts, our triune God is beginning a work of new creation in filling his people with his breath, the Spirit filling them. 
And while it isn't the wind that is hovering over them, like the wind was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, fire is. Fire is hovering over their heads. And fire is also an important image in the covenantal appearances of God. In initiating covenant with Abraham, a a floating fire pot and torch passes through animals of sacrifice. Later, with Moses, God reveals himself in a burning bush of fire. The Spirit of God will later then lead Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of fire, and then will ultimately hover over the tabernacle as fire before entering and dwelling in the midst of his people as they then travel. But if there is one huge scene that I think all of this wind and fire stuff in Acts 2 is likely meant to like catapult our theological imagination toward, it's Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when God covenants himself to Israel in a great wedding feast, a great wedding ceremony of cloud and of smoke and of thunder and of lightning and of wind and of fire. And then beginning in chapter 20 of Exodus, right immediately following all this with the Ten Commandments and then through the following chapters, Moses gives the people the law, beginning with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. And so here in Acts 2 is a new new moment of God covenanting again with his people, not on a mountain, but in an upper room, not under 12 tribes, but under 12 apostles. This is why it was so important that we found a replacement 12 last week at the end of Acts 1, not with laws outside of them on tablets of stone, but on laws inside of them on hearts of flesh, because the history of Israel is actually all along pointing toward this. What Clint read in our call to worship and in our assurance of pardon of a promised new covenant. In Jeremiah, we already heard this, but God says through Jeremiah, but behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, not the Exodus 19 covenant, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or in Ezekiel 36, that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove this heart of stone, a dead, cold, lifeless heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. This is what's happening in Acts 2. Here it is, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The hopes of Moses, even in Numbers 11, that all of God's people might be prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit not just in a couple of people, but in all of them. That is unlike the old covenant, when the Holy Spirit would come and go, would primarily work through appointed roles like priests or kings or temporary tasks, like designing or building the tabernacle or the temple, or even in violently delivering his people through people like the judges. But that finally God would come and would create from within, finally and fully delivering and sealing his people once and for all by his spirit. And this is what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus, Nicodemus in John 3, talking about the wind, how it comes and goes and you cannot control it. The breath of God moving about where it pleases, but that all people by it might be born again. 
All people must be born again. It isn't you're physically being born into the people of Israel and then keeping an external law that had no power to create internally what it commanded, but a second spiritual birth into the new covenant people of God. Unable to keep the external law, but that through Christ who keeps it for them, then by the Spirit of God, and then now with ever-growing power to create internally a love for and obedience to God. And so that's why nearly every night since our kids were born, we, we taught them to pray and please God give us new hearts that are alive to you, that we might love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Like they don't even know what they're necessarily understanding or what, what, understanding what they're praying for at this point. Certainly when they were really small. But that we are teaching them to pray for Ezekiel 36, new hearts. They're praying for an Acts 2 Pentecost work of the Spirit to recreate them, to seal them by God and for God for eternity. Having a heart that is alive to Him, that they might love Him and love others as He has created them to be. Now that's not to say that these 120 in the upper room weren't saved before this moment any more than Abraham, Moses, David, John the Baptist weren't saved. It was by their faith before the coming of Christ that God credited to them as righteousness, by faith. But there is a new work of eternal and sealed transformation that God begins here in Acts 2, that God gives his spirit to his church finally and fully. But now, let's see that the pouring out of the Spirit was not necessarily just for inner peace or something. Just that they might be comforted to just sit and uh, put their feet up, enjoying the presence of God within them with a coffee, a warm coffee or a latte and an Instagram post to go along with it. But the breath of God was not given just for supernatural power, but while the Holy Spirit was given for the church, secondly now, the Holy Spirit for the entire world. In verse 5, we read, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, Luke is pretty clearly speaking hyperbolically here. He's just using a a known phrase of under heaven to mean like the entire world that he knows of. Like just like when you might go to New York or something and you come home and you tell your friends that you heard people speaking languages from all over the world. Like your friends don't say, ah, really? The whole world? They know what you mean. And we know what Luke means here. Luke isn't lying and he certainly knows of European countries and kingdoms like Tarshish that Jonah was sent to, even though we're told about Tarshish here or Spain or Gaul in France or India to the east. What he has given us is nations from every single direction surrounding Jerusalem, north, south, east, and west. From all directions, people have come in to Jerusalem. And these are Jews from the whole world, as it were. They have come into this place, devout men. They had come to Jerusalem to worship and to remember Pentecost. Now, the first, why are there Jews all over the world in the first place. The the first major dispersion of Jews from Palestine was with the Babylonians, but then later Greek conquests either carried away or drove away people into what you might sometimes hear called as the diaspora. Now, some historians estimate 
that there are over, at this point in the first century, over five million diaspora Jews living outside of Palestine in the first century, including, get this, a larger Jewish population in Alexandria, Egypt, than there was in Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, some, maybe most, of these Jews from around the Mediterranean world would have still spoken Aramaic, but nearly all would have at least spoken Greek, the common language of the Mediterranean world. If you've never heard the word the Septuagint, uh, the Septuagint, this is just the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek now because that's what everyone was speaking. This would have, the, the, these first century Jews would have been meditating on and memorizing the Greek scriptures, the Septuagint. And so Jews from all over the world are in Jerusalem, and apparently these 120, after the, the freight train hair on fire scene, uh, they just start going outside. They've taken a moment, and they go outside, and they start proclaiming the name of Jesus as the risen Christ. They're telling everyone they can meet that he is the Messiah, and that God is fulfilling all of his promises now in him. But here's the thing. The Cappadocian Jews are hearing them proclaim Christ in Cappadocian. And the Arabian Jews are hearing them preach in Arabic. And it doesn't make any sense. These are folks from the uneducated backwoods of the Roman Empire, even the backwoods of Palestine, Galilee. It's like if you went to like the, the furthest remote reaches of Turkey or something, or you found yourself with a group of people uh, visiting like a remote mountain village in Pakistan or something. You'd be surprised if these villagers even spoke English, which we might say is like the, the common language of the world today. You, you'd be very surprised, but it would not make any sense if some people from your group that were visiting this village with you, you perhaps had a, a German with you, you had a Guatemalan with you, you had someone from Brazil and someone from China and Vietnam and Russia and Indonesian, and these Pakistani villagers not only can speak English, but they can speak all of these other languages, and they are proclaiming Christ in all of these other languages, not just well, but perfectly and fluently, you would think, this doesn't make any sense. And so, these dispersion Jews think this doesn't make any sense as well. They say that they must be drunk on the sweet wine, not just wine, but the sweet stuff. We don't really know what that means, but whether it's because they just don't believe uh, what's happening, and they're, they're just getting lucky because they're drunk, or perhaps this sweet wine has some sort of like mystical divine power that's giving them this ability. There just isn't a reasonable explanation because there isn't. What's going on here? Well, again, the layers are deep. This certainly, Acts 2, seems to be a reversal of the story that we hear of and read about in, of Babel in Genesis 11 where God desired that the people would make much of him and then spread as his image bearers all over the earth. In Genesis 11, they gathered in one central place to make much of themselves. And so what does God do? He scatters them by confusing them into dozens of languages. Now, in Acts 2, he is calling people from all different languages back now to a central place to unite them in clear language, not to make much of themselves, but to make much of him. The gift of tongues here in Acts 2 is to proclaim Jesus as the risen Christ. But here's the thing. Uh, this is not a multinational gathering here. 
It's not a multi-ethnic gathering. That's certainly coming in Acts, but not yet. This is a multicultural and a multilingual gathering, but these are all still Jews. They're not like uh, overcoming major ethnic boundaries here. But again, Ezekiel 36 is likely in play. Just before what we read earlier about hearts of stone and flesh, God says through Ezekiel in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. As we'll see next week even more, the house of Israel is being restored under a new King David. But here's where the nations are actually in view and why I've titled this section, The Holy Spirit for the, for the World or for the Nations. By giving their allegiance to this new King David, King Jesus, this new covenant people of God will be sent out to conquer the world, just as Israel was. Not with swords, though, but as lights to the world in love. That through this nation, initially, all nations would be blessed. Just as God dwelled by fire in the midst of his people, once in a mobile tabernacle, and then later in a centralized temple. Now, God would not just fill a particular tent or a particular building, but he would fill a particular people. He would make each individual person into a little mobile tabernacle that they might take the light, the warmth, the fire of God's presence wherever they go. Eventually, even back to Rome, back to Pamphylia and to Libya and to Crete, all over the known world. And so this is Pentecost. It's a first fruits festival. It's a feast of the first fruits. And the 3,000 that will come to believe at the end of this chapter are but just a very small bundle, a small bundle of a few stalks of wheat, a small bundle of the worldwide harvest that God will reap for himself. And that even now, as they, we, get to be part of his spirit-indwelled mobile tabernacle mission to the world, that he might fill the entire world of all peoples and of all tongues and of all nations and of all peoples with his presence, with us, through us, wherever we go. Now, we'll have a lot more to talk about and to think about in the miraculous works of the Spirit, even in the baptism of the Spirit that we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. This is the time, though, that we'll, if we're ever going to mention the gift of the Spirit uh, with tongues in the book of Acts, we got to do it now. Because here's the thing, it doesn't get mentioned again in the rest of the book. In fact, there's only one place in the rest of the New Testament where tongues appear, and that's in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. So the question for us is, how much of this that we just read here and that we'll continue to read throughout the rest of the book is descriptive of the first generation church and how much of it is prescriptive for us as the modern church? Should we expect a similar experience or movement of great power like this when we become Christians? Maybe we don't ever hear a freight train wind or see somebody's hair on fire, but at least there's some experience of that. Or even not just initially, but ongoingly. Without such power, can we have assurance that God has actually filled us with his spirit? First of all, 
While, while Paul and Luke are using the same word in Acts 2 and in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, while they're using the same word, tongues, they are almost certainly talking about two different things. Tongues just means languages. So they are talking about people speaking in languages. And the languages in Acts 2 is a public language where everyone can understand in order that Christ might be proclaimed very clearly, that there might be no confusion. The Corinthian languages that Paul is addressing is something that he's encouraging people to do privately and only done in public if there is an interpreter. There are no interpreters needed in Acts 2, and that's the point, right? But these prayer tongues in Corinth would, wouldn't have been a strange or unexpected thing. For most of us in the modern West, certainly uh, if you or we might come outside of a certain Christian uh, theological circle, if some visitor who wasn't a Christian at all came into a Christian gathering and there were lots of people praying in an unintelligible, confusing language, a visitor might walk in and say, these people forgot to take their medicine this morning, right? I don't understand this at all. But if a Corinthian visitor walked into a gathering of Corinthian Christians, this visitor would say, oh, I know this. This is what I do down the street, down at the temple to Aphrodite. We, we all do this in all of our different uh, temples and places of worship, this ecstatic kind of prayer language. So Paul wants an outsider to know that this is not just the same old kind of praying to this new Jewish God, but that this is the power of the risen Christ himself. Tongues are a sign not for believers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, but it is a sign for unbelievers. And so, perhaps for a time, God was sanctifying and transforming an already common and prevalent spiritual practice, that of praying in tongues, of ecstatic prayer languages. Paul doesn't forbid these kinds of praying interpretation-needed languages. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, I don't forbid tongues. It's not a big deal, it seems. But he does encourage, but he does say, I do encourage prophecy. Now, prophecy is a different sermon for another day. <laughs> we'll do that another time. But here's the thing about Acts 2 tongues. Many traditions say that unless you have been baptized by the Spirit in this kind of way, sealed by the Spirit, until you have had the gift of tongues, then you can't have such assurance that you have received the Spirit. But this doesn't happen again. This kind of pouring out of the Spirit does not happen again in the book of Acts. In fact, we might be, I might be tempted to say, if one of us were to be praying that God would pour out his spirit, we might say, oh, he's, he's already done that. He did that in Acts 2. It might be similar to praying, God, we pray that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. No, 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 he's, he's done that. That is already done. He has poured out the spirit in the giving of the new covenant, in the sealing of his people. Now, it happens individually when people receive the Spirit, but not in this kind of way. This doesn't happen again in the book of Acts. In fact, given that the book of Acts spans over three decades, it's actually, as I've heard one person call it, the book of Acts is kind of like a greatest hits of the, of the Holy Spirit album. It's, I think we can read the book of Acts and kind of just assume that if you were living in the first century church, it was like, miracle here, power here, people are like, 
the scales are falling off their eyes and people are seeing when they were formerly blind. There's tons of healing. People are talking in tongues all over the place, day by day and even minute by minute. This is 30 years worth of, I think, the greatest hits of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm not saying is that people can't still pray in tongues or that God does not still miraculously heal. Who are we to tell God what he can and can't do and when and when he can and can't operate? And certainly throughout both the sweep of the story of the Bible and through the story of the history of the church, God seems to powerfully and miraculously work when he is beginning something new, especially in new frontiers of time or new frontiers of places in the world. But the normative Christian life of walking by the Spirit, of keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul would say, is actually, and maybe disappointingly, much more, well, what seems to be much more boring. But I have become convinced is actually much more transformative. When someone becomes a Christian, they don't like sign their name on a contract and then just wait to be zapped with supernatural superpowers. Like you're, you're waiting on your like, X-Men mutant gift or something like that. God transforms and redirects our humanity from ways that were self-worshipping, that were self-motivated, that were self-centered, and he flips all those. And he changes and he redirects former habits and skills and inclinations and gifts, and he points these things outward for the good of the church. And he points these things upward for the worship of his own name. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, he says, don't get drunk. He's talking about alcohol. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then in the same sentence, in the very same sentence, and then ongoingly through the rest of that section, what would you expect? How would you expect Paul, if you've never read Ephesians 5, how would you expect Paul to then finish that train of thought? Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with spirit so that, we might say, being drunk in the Holy Spirit is way more exciting, is way more freeing, is way more fun, is way more power. But what does he actually do? What is, what is, what, how does he finish his line of thought? What does being filled with the Holy Spirit actually look like in Ephesians 5? Well, encouraging others with song and making a melody to the Lord. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being grateful. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So perhaps the normative experience for someone who is walking by the Spirit isn't necessarily praying in tongues or healing the sick. But it's like humming a song of praise as a person walks down the sidewalk. Perhaps being thankful to God for the warm sun and a healthy dinner and a beating heart. Gratitude is not natural. It is supernatural. And then not using others to get what I need and want, but considering others to be more significant than myself. That is a supernatural act of the triune God in our life. And then, 
understanding ourselves to be the mobile tabernacles of God's glory, now moving from this place and boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. This is a work of the Spirit, to exalt Christ. Now again, what I'm not saying is that the Spirit-filled life is actually really boring and the Spirit is actually ignorable. I think that as a church, we have miles and miles and miles to go for cultivating an awareness and a minute-by-minute dependence on the role and the work and the power of the Spirit in our lives. Because, oh Spirit, you, you are a person. The Spirit is a person, not some invisible force or an energy that we can like grab hold of and manipulate and use for our own benefit. But the Spirit is the personal presence of God now dwelling inside of His people. We need help to walk with the Spirit more closely, to not grieve Him in our ignoring Him or willingly choosing sin and self as ultimate over Christ. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you to understand, to depend on, and to walk by the Spirit. All right, thanks for being patient with me. I I know that I've gone a little longer than normal because of my initial detour from this. We will have much, much, much more to say about the work of the triune God in our life and the work of the Spirit, particularly in forming and building His church. But let me leave you with this. How do you know if you have received the Spirit? If we do not have freight train and hair on fire moments, how can we be sure that we have been sealed as the new covenant people of God? Well, are you presently trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you, even unto eternal life? Rest assured, beloved. He has given you his spirit. That is not a natural thing to want to worship Christ as your king. We will never love him perfectly, and that's why we need the ongoing work of the spirit to sanctify our weak heart and our weak faith. But keep trusting in Christ. Place your faith in him and be assured in those moments And then let's keep growing to know the Father in spirit and in truth. Let's worship the Son in his glory and in his grace. And let's walk even more intimately with the Spirit in independence and in trust. And then let's go from here with wind and with fire. Not to go put our feet up. Not to go sit at home in isolation, even in this time of isolation. But like we mentioned last week, be moving towards just one person with the glory and the power of Christ in our hearts and in our lives as hotspots of his presence and of li- as lighthouses of his love to, the wit- to be witnesses to the glory and the goodness of our King, to King Jesus, who has conquered death, who has conquered sin, and by his Spirit has given us new hearts for our good, for his glory, and for the good of the nations around us. Let's pray to that end. Oh, triune God, we know that you are good, that you are mighty. God, we 
pray that you would become even more real in our hearts and in our minds, more actualized as we walk, as we move through moments of temptation, as we move through moments of fearfulness and of impatience and of self-worship. Spirit, we need you. We need you to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need you to help us worship our Father and know him as Father. Help us, we pray, to encourage one another to use the gifts that you have given for the good of one another, for the building up of the church, that Christ might be lifted up in our own hearts and in the neighborhoods and the nations around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq dot com.